This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. You can receive all new content offered by EverythingVoluntary.com in your email inbox every single weekday for free. Visit Digest.EverythingVoluntary.com to subscribe. Thank you, and thank you all for coming. Um, so, I guess everybody, does everybody have this handout? Did everybody get a copy of that? And Good. So this gives an outline of what I'm talking about. Can everybody hear me okay? Can you hear me way in the back there? Um, this gives an outline of what I'm talking about, and on the back side there are some references if you want to pursue any of these ideas further. Um, so the topic of my talk today is play, I've titled it Play Deficit Disorder, a National Crisis and How to Solve It Locally. And the front page of the handout gives an outline here, and I'm just going to go through that outline and pr- talk in, in the order of, um, of what's listed there. So before talking about play deficit disorder, I need to tell you something about what I mean by play. What is play? Play is a word that we use for a lot of different, in a lot of different ways. Like a lot of English words, it could have a number of different meanings. And sometimes the meanings get confused with one another. And so I want to be sure that we're all talking about the same thing when we're talking about play in this context. So um, even before introducing play, I want to just say, trying to define play, I want to say just a few words about play and its importance to children before I define exactly what it is. Throughout history and in essentially every culture, in every time and place, except in times and places where children were slaves or were essentially slaves uh, in, in sweatshops and other uh, kinds of factories or mines and so on, uh, and except in modern times as we have today, except for those situations, children have always spent most of their time playing. Most of their time playing in the way that I'm going to describe, meaning playing away from adults, playing with other children. Children come into the world, I am convinced, biologically designed to learn by playing with other children. In age-mixed groups, in places where they're free, in places where there's no adult authority figure solving their problems for them. So as a consequence, they have to learn how to solve the problems themselves. Children everywhere that where children are free to play, play at all of the kinds of skills that human beings everywhere have to learn. So think of the different ways that children play when they really have lots of time and opportunity to play. And time and opportunity to play means, means hours per day available for play. And it also means children to play with, lots of children to play with. And this is the world in which children have almost always grown up until recent times. 
So children play in physical ways. They chase one another around, they wrestle, they climb trees, they do all kinds of physically strenuous things in play, and that's how they build their bodies, and that's how they learn how to move gracefully. Children everywhere in the world play in risky ways. They climb trees higher than we might want them to. They skateboard in our culture down banisters. They romp along cliffs. They dive off of cliffs. They do all kinds of things that seem dangerous. And what are they doing when they do that? They're learning courage. They're practicing putting themselves deliberately in fearful situations where they're actually experiencing some fear and they're learning to control themselves so they don't fall apart in a real emergency at some point later on. Turns out all mammals, all young mammals play, at least as far as we know, the ones that have been studied play in risky ways, for that, apparently for that same reason. So those are ways of playing that we share with other mammals. But then there's certain ways that we play that are uniquely human because there are many uniquely human kinds of skills that other animals don't have to learn. So we play with language. Nobody teaches children how to talk. Children learn how to talk on their own through play. They pay attention, they hear language around them, and they playfully mimic the sounds of language and eventually the words of language. The first cooing and babbling, the first syllable-like sounds of infants are always when the child is happy and in a playful mood. The first words of children are never used instrumentally to ask for something. It's always just in play that they're using those words. And as children go older, they play with language in more and more complex ways, and that's how they learn language. They play games with rules. In every culture, there are some children play games with rules. I'm going to argue that all games have rules, at least implicit rules, but, but also there are games in every culture with explicit rules. Well, we are the animal that, that has to live by rules. Every society has rules, whether they're stated or unstated. There are rules we have to live by. And we human beings, unlike other animals, or at least much more so than other animals, have to uh, learn how to abide by socially agreed upon uh, uh, ideas of what's right and wrong and what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. And children playing games with rules are practicing that. Children everywhere play imaginative games, and in fact, all play involves some element of imagination, as I'm going to argue as I go along. But some kinds of play are purely imaginative. You are fantasy. You're imagining that you are a superhero and, and, uh, and that you're on your trip to Mars or whatever it is, or you're imagining that there's a troll under the bridge. You're imagining something that doesn't, doesn't exist, but then you're thinking about the consequences of that and you're carrying it out logically. You are engaged in the highest order kind of human thinking, the kind of thinking that distinguishes us from other animals always involves imagination. Other animals apparently, as far as we can tell, can't imagine. But we can imagine, and that's why we can think hypothetically. We can think of things that aren't actually there. That's why we can be scientists. That's also why we can think about tomorrow. That's why we can be logicians. And, ch and children are practicing that all the time in their imaginary play. We play games with logic. Some of the imaginary games, you've got an imaginary situation, but then you're logically following through on the consequences of that. Children everywhere engage in constructive play. They play at building things. 
what they build varies by culture, but ev but in every culture, children play at construct. We're the we're the animal with opposable thumbs. We're the animal that's designed to use our hands to build things. We we build our shelters. We build conveyances. We build tools. We have always survived by building things. And so it's no wonder that children come into the world biologically designed to want to play at building things, among other ways of playing. And we play with the tools of the culture. Children in every culture, anthropologists who've observed children in a variety of different cultures, see that children are drawn to, like filings being drawn to a magnet, drawn to the tools that seem to be the important tools of the culture that they're growing up in. And, and especially those tools that are kind of difficult to use and might even be a little bit dangerous. They want to play with those things because at some level, not consciously necessarily, but some level instinctively, they recognize that these tools that they see are so important in the culture that they better get good at these tools. And so they play with these tools as their way of getting good at using those tools. So hunter-gatherers play with fire and machetes or and digging sticks and bows and arrows and and uh, they play with dugout canoes if they've got that they play with the they make little musical instruments like the culture that they're growing up in and they the, uses and they play with those uh, children growing up in agricultural cultures farming cultures play with farming equipment Children growing up in our modern culture today play with computers, no surprise. It doesn't take much to look around and be able to see that far and away the most important tool of our culture today is the computer. No matter what you're going to do when you grow up, you're gonna, you better be good at computers. So no wonder our children are drawn to computers and play almost endlessly with computers, just as children in hunter-gatherer cultures are drawn to bows and arrows and fire and play almost endlessly with those things. So these are the things that, these are the ways, some of the ways that children play. And regardless of any of these other ways of playing, they are also terribly motivated to play socially with other children. What, no matter what, the, whether they're playing physically or whether they're playing at some risky game, whether they're playing with language, whether they're playing games with rules, whether they're playing imaginary games, playing at building things, their preference is to be playing with other children. There's nothing more important to a child than to have other children to play with. They are absolutely drawn to that. And unfortunately, children in our society are... are, are uh, uh, are deprived of the freedom to play with other children in the kinds of natural ways away from adults uh, that they are designed to play. And I'm going to argue that our children are suffering because of that. And it's no wonder that children are so drawn to want to play with other children because the most important thing that human beings have to learn is how to get along with other people way more important than learning how to read, way more important than learning how to do things with numbers, way more important than the things that we think are so important in the curriculum in school, is how to get along well with other people. You can live a, you can live a happy life in our culture if you can't read. There are, certain, there, there are people who truly have dyslexia. It's an overdiagnosed thing, but there are people who truly have dyslexia and can't learn how to read, and they're doing okay in life. They figure out ways of getting by. There are people who uh, really are kind of mathematically illiterate, and they do okay in life. They, you know, somebody else can do it for them, or they just take out their pocket calculator if they need to calculate something. 
But you can't have a happy life if you can't get along with other people. You can't, if you don't know how to get your needs met while meeting somebody else's needs, which is what children are practicing all the time in social play, you can't have a good marriage, you can't have good work partners, you can't have real friends, and if you can't have those things, if you're a human being, you can't really have a happy life. Happiness depends upon those things. So that's the... um, that's the, so that's kind of the, the, the beginning of looking at what play is doing for children. Play, children play in all of these different ways, and in doing so, they're basically practicing all of the different categories of basic skills that children need to acquire to grow up, to be happy and successful, Uh, to live a meaningful sort of life. And that's really what education is. It's learning what you need to know to live and learning the skills that you need to have to live a happy, meaningful, fulfilled life. And I'm arguing that it's those kinds of skills that children naturally practice when they're playing. From a biological perspective then, play which is my perspective, play is um, nature's way of ensuring that young mammals, and our young mammals in particular, our children in particular, practice the kinds of skills that they need for success in life. Uh, From a religious perspective, we might say that play is God's gift that makes life worthwhile. Isn't it interesting that the very thing that we need to do to really learn the skills that we need to need to know to live a meaningful life are also the very things that bring us such great joy such great pleasure such great satisfaction and what a crime it is that we are today depriving our children of that that over the last several decades, we have increasingly taken children's freedom to play away from them. And what I'm going to argue is there have been very serious negative consequences of the fact that we've been depriving children of play. So now I'm ready to go on to the definition of play. So you can do, play can't be defined by what you're doing. I have just listed some of the various kinds of things that children do when you're playing, but you could have two people doing the same thing, say maybe climbing a tree or pounding nails into a board, and one of them is playing and the other is not playing. And what's the difference between the one that is playing and the one that is not playing? That's, how, that's where we have to come to understanding of what, is, what do I mean by play? What, how do we decide that a category of activity is play versus not play? First, I should say the play is not necessarily all or none. What I'm going to be describing is the conditions of pure play. If all of these characteristics that I'm going to list are fully present, then it's pure play. Pure play characterizes children much more than it does adults, as well it should, because children have so much more to learn than adults do. And adults, by necessity, and properly so, have more responsibilities than children. And when you're carrying out responsibilities, you're not totally playful playing. You, you may be carrying out your responsibilities in a playful way, and that makes it a lot more fun, and there's a playful aspect to it, but it's not pure play. Pure play is primarily for children. 
it's primarily, I don't want to say it doesn't exist among adults, but it's primarily for children, and I'm really talking primarily about children's play right now. So the first characteristic of play is that it is self-chosen and self-directed. So what that means is that if there's an authority figure there that says, okay, now children, we're all going to play this, (laughs) then it's not play. Because if there's somebody saying we're going to play it and 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 the child doesn't have any choice about it, or even if the child has choice, but the pressure is there to do it, it would be awkward to say, the teacher is saying, now we're all going to play this, and a child who says, I'm not going to play it, um, that's a troublemaking child, right? So, that, so there's a lot of pressure to do what the teacher says. And so as soon as you have that situation, it's not play. When we think that, we're putting our, that our children are playing because we're sending them off to, uh, quote, play soccer on this organized soccer team, that's not play because that's not an activity that the children are creating. That's an activity that some adult is creating and it's not an activity that children are directing. What One of the most important things that children learn in play is how to create their own activities, how to solve their own problems, how to negotiate with their playmates. And when we've got an adult there doing that for them, then the most valuable lessons of play are being taken away. So Little League Baseball or, so- or organized soccer or whatever it is that your children might be in, this might be a good way to learn baseball or to learn soccer, but it's not a good way to learn the important lessons of life. Very few people are going to go on to be, be, make a living playing baseball. And for very few people, the specific skill of being able to throw a curveball or bunt or slide into second base, uh, are, for very few people, that's going to be a meaningful thing in their long term of their life. But the ability to create a game, the ability to create, to, to negotiate with your peers, to choose up sides, to make up the rules because you have to make your own ground rules because there's, and the ability to, to argue effectively about whether a throw is a ball or a strike or what is legal or not legal. The ability to make judgments about, okay, this is a little kid coming up to bat. Do we pitch hard to him or do we pitch softly? In the, in the Little League game, you pitch hard because the goal is to win. But when you're playing, the goal is to have fun and keep everybody involved. So you're learning how to accommodate the needs of other people. Those are lessons that are going to be so important for all of life. And those are not the lessons that can be learned when, there's an adu- when there are adults there organizing the activity. So when, if we think that we're doing our children a favor by creating these games for them and putting them into them, uh, instead of just sending them outdoors and making them create their own games, we're not doing them a favor. We're depriving them of something that is really, first of all, greatly joyful to them to do, and secondly, is a real important learning experience for them. Second characteristic of play is that it's intrinsically motivated. You're not doing it for any reward outside of itself. You're not doing it to get a trophy. You're not doing it to get praise from your parents. You're not doing it to add add to your resume for getting into college. You're not doing it to lose weight. You're just doing it because it's fun. Uh, 
And isn't it interesting that doing what's fun is so often doing also what's good for you, but you're not thinking of it as being good for you. You're thinking of it as being fun. It turns out that nature designed us in such a way that by and large, there are exceptions in our culture, but by and large, the things that we do for fun are also good for us. (laughs) And isn't that great? And so we should allow our children to do what's fun because it's also good for them. So that's the uh, nature of play. You know how in schools they say oftentimes at the graduation speech, almost every graduation speech, whether it's graduation from high school or from college, the the speaker urges the graduates to follow their passions. It's almost cruel. How do they know what their passions are if all they've been doing is school and at other adult-directed things? Passions requires that you play. (laughs) Passions come in play. Passions come from pursuing what you yourself want to do. You're not getting any rewards for it. You're just doing it because you want to do. Do it. And, and, and you have time to do it. You spend time to do it. But if school has taken up all your time, you don't have time to develop any passions. You don't have time. Back in the days when I was a kid and school was not by any means the big deal it is today. And we didn't have homework. And we, did, we had much longer summers away from school. We had, a lot, we, we had a lot more time to develop hobbies and pursue our own interests. We had time to develop passions. But they were never developed in school. Very, or I should say very rarely. Passions were developed outside of school. And if we were lucky, we went on to careers that were extensions of those passions. And in my studies of children who are involved in self-directed education settings, unschooling kids and in kids who are uh, gone to a school like the Sudbury Valley School where I've done studies where children are basically playing and exploring all the time, what I found is that they very frequently go on to careers that are direct extensions of true passions that they developed in play. I could give many, many examples of that, but, I, and, but I'll save that if, if there are questions about it. And oftentimes, they're very unusual kinds of jobs, but jobs that you wouldn't even know about or think about if all you'd done is school. But jobs that you kind of, they came this way. I've been playing, I've been spending all of my time playing with this and doing this and that. And now I'm turning 17, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And I wonder if there's a way I can make a living doing what I love to do. And my studies of grown unschoolers, grown people who've been self-directed education suggest to me that a very high percentage of them go on to careers that are direct extensions of what they were playing, what their favorite way of playing was as a kid. So for them, you know, they will say, my job, my job is still play. There's a certain sense in which it's not fully play because now I'm doing it also for money. I'm doing the supporting my, my, and I have to do it correct. I've got an obligation to my customers that I, whereas when I was playing, it didn't matter if I failed. Now it matters that I get it right because it's no longer pure play. I'm doing it, I'm doing it as a living. 
So, that's, so th the fact that you're following something in, that's intrinsically motivating, you're discovering what you love to do. An extremely important thing to do, something you can't really do in school. Because in school, you're required to do the things that you're required to do. You're not even allowed to spend a lot of time even on the school things <laughs> that might interest you because then you know, the bell rings and you've got to go on to something else. You don't really have much opportunity to develop passions. Third, third part of the definition of play is that, is that play is always guided by rules. And that might sound uh, non-intuitive to you. We think of play as free, and it is free. It's freely chosen. But there's this interesting paradox. When a child freely chooses to play something, the child is choosing to limit the scope of his choices. <laughs> so once you have chosen to play, you have put yourself in a situation where there are certain rules restricting what you can do. And this is true of even what might look like the wildest kinds of play. So imagine a couple of boys chasing one another around, wrestling, pushing one another, you know, engaging in a kind of play fight. Uh, it looks absolutely wild. It looks chaotic. It looks like there's no rules. But think of what the actual rules are. No kicking, no biting, no... Uh, hitting hard. No, if you're the stronger of the two, you have to self-handicap in some way. If you're, you're going to throw somebody, you have to throw them on a pillow or a pile of leaves or something. You, you are, this is an exercise. This looks like an exercise in being wild, but it's actually an exercise in restraint. It's an exercise in how to engage in what kind of has the superficial form of a fight but at the same time is aimed at something that's the opposite of a fight, whereas a fight is aimed at subduing and driving away the other person. Play fighting is aimed at pleasing and keeping the other person engaged and having fun. And for, for it to go on, your playmate has to have fun as well as you have to have fun. And that means there has to be rules governing what you're doing. The interesting difference between a play fight and a real fight is the play fight has rules and the real fight doesn't. So when children are engaged in play, they're always practicing the following of rules. And I could give for any kind of example of play you could think of, I could tell you what some of the rules are. So you create, imagine constructive play. When children are making a sandcastle, they're not just randomly throwing sand together. They have some kind of a concept of what they're doing. And the rule is they work within that medium, in this case sand, to build something that fits in some sense an image that they have in their mind. So play is always controlled behavior. Now that doesn't mean that the rules are always the same. Children are free to change the rules whenever they want. But if it's in social play, if they change the rules, they've got to agree on that change. And that means a lot of negotiation. They have to discuss the change in rules. And, and ch so children are learning to negotiate rules. They're learning not only to follow rules, but they're learning how to create rules and negotiate about rules in the context of their play. The fourth characteristic of play that I've listed here is that play always has some component of imagination, and some play is more imaginative than others. But play always involves, to some degree, some kind of stepping out of the real world. There's always some kind of implicit acknowledgement. We are now no longer in the real world. 
we're now in this magical fantasy world of, of baseball or, or playing superheroes or chess or a magical world of where, where sand castles are, where castles are made of sand and so on and so forth. Even something like that, that in that play fight, the children, the play, children play fighting recognize they're calling it a fight, but they know it's a pretend fight. It's an imaginary fight. It's a play fight. So children are always practicing imagination. And as I said before, imagination is the foundation for the highest forms of human thought. So these are the characteristics. To the degree that an activity has all of these characteristics, it's self-chosen and self-directed, it's intrinsically motivated, it's, guide, it's not random, but is guided by some kind of mental concept of what you're doing, and so it has structure, and it is imaginative, to that degree, it is fully play. This, um, this point about... Um, about play having structure, always having structure. People talk about unstructured play, and I think what they mean when they say unstructured play is play that is not structured by some adult. But, um, but by my definition, if it's, not, if it's structured by some adult rather than by the players themselves, it's not play. So by, I would argue that all play is structured but all play is structured by the players themselves rather than by some external authority figure who, that is structuring it for them. That, it's, that those kinds of other kinds of activities may be valid activities, but it is confounding our meaning of play if we include them in the category of play. All right, so now I'm ready to start talking about, I should probably check the time here, uh, to ta- start talking about the decline of play. So over the past 60 years in the United States, roughly 60 years, there has been a continuous, gradual, but ultimately huge decline in children's freedom to play. Um, It has occurred gradually enough that most of us haven't noticed it. Uh, it's only when you think about decades ago. And so in my case, you know, I'm 74 years old. I grew up in the 1950s. And when I think about the difference between children's freedom to lack of freedom today and the freedom that children had in the 1950s to play, there's no comparison. Little kids, I mean, by the time I was five, I could go pretty much anywhere in the town that I was growing up in. Uh, I could even go out of town as long as I was going with my six-year-old friend who was more mature than I was. <laughs> and we would go on bicycle trips. Her name was Ruby Lou. I've since uh, reconnected with Ruby Lou, interestingly. She's, I talk about her at the beginning of my book. So Ruby Lou was my playmate, who, uh, and we would go exploring. How I many today, what five- and six-year-old would be allowed to go riding their bike, not only in the town that they're in, but to a town that's a mile or two away, and go off walking in the woods and stuff. Somebody would surely report them to the, to the protective services and the parents, there would be some kind of a discussion with the parents. What in the 1950s was normal, accepted practice is now regarded as negligence. What throughout human history was normal, accepted practice in terms of allowing children freedom to just go out and play with other children is now regarded as negligence. 
So there's been a huge change. It's been documented in a number of ways. It's hard to actually quantify it. In, in the first chapter of Free to Learn, I present the results of some studies that are in some sense an attempt to, to quantify it. Um, but regardless of what's done, the, you know, it's one of the ways that it's done is simply by asking parents how many hours a day most of this, the, these, the studies have to do with outdoor play, but some of it has to do with just play in general. But how many, day, how many hours a day were you free to play outdoors uh, uh, when you were a child? And how many hours a day does your own child play? And what's generally found is just over that one generation, the amount of hours free to play outdoors is typically cut in half. <laughs> and if you multiply that by the number of generations that have occurred over the past 60 years, by maybe three gen two and a half or three generations, that's a huge decline in play. And also, in the, even, even bigger than the decline in number of hours would be decline in the range of play. What kinds of ways are you allowed to play? Where are you allowed to play? and so on and so forth. So uh, Howard Chudikoff is a um, historian who's written about, the, um, about play, he's written about a book on the history of play in America. And he argues that the first half of the 20th century was what he calls the golden age for children's play. So I was a kid at the tail end of Chudikoff's golden age. Um, and the reason this was the golden age of children's play is we, uh, we're coming out of a bad period of history um, that had preceded that where children were often uh, laborers and children had very little opportunity. Many children had little opportunity to play because they'd spend many hours working in one way or another. But we abolished, we more or less abolished child labor around the turn of the century. We thought it wasn't good for children to be having to work uh, the way adults were having to work for so many hours a day. We decided that that was cruel and we would free them up. But then gradually over time, we began to take away that freedom. Beginning around 1955, we began to take away that freedom in a number of ways, uh, which um, included the more and more schooling, more and more adult kinds of directed things that children are in. And so we actually now, if you think about it, school for many children is the equivalent or more to a full-time adult job. And it's not a very good job. It's not a job that most of you in this room would voluntarily accept. And in fact, I dare say none of you would. It is a micromanaged job in which you are not allowed to talk to, the, to your neighbor next to you, in which cooperation is called cheating, in which you need permission to go to the bathroom, in which you are constantly being evaluated. I mean, it's bad enough in your job maybe to have a once a year evaluation, but to be evaluated every day and compared explicitly with all your, your workmates on how well or not well you are doing, that's not a job that any of us would accept. And yet, that's what we are putting our children into. I know many children who would rather work in a factory. <laughs> And we don't allow them to because we think that's bad for them, but we force them to work in school. So, that, so think about that. So we freed children from child labor, and then we have created school, which is a kind of useless child labor. It's not producing anything. And I, I would even argue, and this is not my thesis today, that's a different talk, that it's not producing much learning either. 
And so we've got to really think about, about why and how we are going to change that. So that's, um, so that's, the, that's, this, that's the decline of play. And so now I want to um, talk about the consequences of that decline. Well, first of all, so just a little bit about the reasons for the decline. I think there's a number of reasons. One of them I've already hinted at. One of them has to do with the increased weight of schooling. Schooling has become, has grown over this period of time. I'm not, I wouldn't argue that school was any better on average in terms of the way school operated when I was a kid. There was just less of it. And so we had lots more time out of school. The school year was five weeks shorter when I was a kid. Uh, we didn't have, we didn't start school until we were six. Uh, we didn't have to stay in school beyond, uh, certainly not beyond the age of 16. Um, and, uh, and college was not an expectation. It was not like a continuation of high school in the sense that everybody felt they had to do that. Uh, there was not all this pressure to get into college, so there was not all this pressure to do so well in school. We didn't have, you know, they had not yet invented these torturous things called advanced placement uh, courses and uh, honors courses and things like that that drive, that drive those students that should be the most relaxed in school because they're presumably the smarter, smartest, drive them crazy because they feel they are failing if they don't get all A's in those classes. So we've create, we didn't have all of that stuff. In elementary school, we didn't have homework. Once in a while, a teacher would ask us to write a poem or draw a picture at home, do something creative and fun and bring it in so we could discuss it. But we never carried workbooks. When, you know, when we were done with school, at the end of the day, we were done with school. <laughs> Our parents were not involved in school. They didn't have to sign off homework things. There were not daily discussions between the tattling back and forth between the parents and the teachers about how the child has fallen behind and all that stuff. School occurred at school, and the rest of the time you were home and you were free. You had some chores at home, but largely you were free to play and explore take part-time jobs, which is also valuable for kids uh, to the degree that they are self-chosen and they're within the realm of what the child wants to do. So that's one thing, this increased weight of schooling. Another, another thing is the spread of societal fears. The world, is not, the world is actually safer today than it was decades past. Uh, there's fewer crimes, believe it or not. Uh, there are fewer crimes against children, but there are also fewer crimes of all sorts than there were in the past. Um, there uh, is no reason to believe that it should be any more dangerous to send our kids out to play than it was then, but we think it's more dangerous. And the reason we think it's more dangerous is because every once in a while something terrible does happen. That's always been true. Uh, you know, it, it's rare. It's really terribly rare. But if, if and when it happens, you know, there are billions of people in the world. It's bound to happen to somebody every day. <laughs> and so when it happens, we kind of all hear about it. And so we all f- have this image in our mind of some terrible thing. I think it turns out that surveys of parents say that the biggest, scariest image is that some child <coughs> molester is going to snatch their child away. And... Um, and this is a crime that almost doesn't occur. You know, I can't say that it doesn't occur, but it almost doesn't occur. Somebody calculated this statistically. You could leave your child out on the worst corner in New York City 
I forget how many hundreds of years before somebody would actually statistically snatch the child away. The chance is no more than being hit by lightning. So the chance is, is there, but it is so small as to be negligible. There are, of course, child molestations that occur. There are crimes against children, but these are not by strangers on the street. These are by people you know. They're by the priest. They're by the teacher. They're by your uncle. They're by people that you, that you believe and trust in. They're, they're, there are, as somebody said, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, I believe, your child is a lot safer out on the street than at home or at church or at school. Um, so the uh, so 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 so, but but we believe that is dangerous, um, and so in some sense it becomes a little bit of a self fulfilling prophecy that it is a little bit more dangerous because if there's always safety in numbers, and so if your child is the only child out there, your child actually is at more risk than if there were lots of children out there as there always were in the past. So the real problem, if there is an increase in risk, is that because we've become afraid of sending our children out there, there aren't many children out there. And therefore, the one child who's out there probably is at a bigger risk than that child would be alone. Also, even more significantly, that child isn't having any fun because there's nobody to play with. Children are not drawn to the great outdoors, by and large, just for the sake of the great outdoors. To some degree, that happens. But largely, the love of the great outdoors is a cultivated love. And it comes from playing outdoors. And the attraction to getting outdoors is other children. And if there's no other children outdoors to play with, and you send your child outdoors to play because you want your child to play outdoors, your child quite understandably will get on his iPhone because that's the only way that he can communicate with his friends. His friends aren't out there. So we've created a situation where children, where number one, the outdoors is a little bit more dangerous because there aren't other kids out there. And number two, the outdoors isn't much fun because there aren't other kids out there to play with. Also, there's much restriction on where you can go outdoors. You know, it used to be that you could go anywhere. You could play in the, you could run across neighbors' yards, and that was quite understandable. You could, you could play in forests. You could play in parks. You could, by the time my son was a kid, teenagers were hanging out in shopping malls. They're not allowed to do that anymore. The security guards drive them out. Basically, we've created a society in which children are not allowed in public spaces. And then we criticize our children for not playing outdoors, but being on the computer instead, after we have so restricted what they can do outdoors as to make it not, make it not much fun to be out there. So that's um, part of the reason for the decline. And then another reason for the decline is not only has schooling itself increased, but perhaps even equally significantly, what has increased is what I sometimes call a schoolish view of child development. And the schoolish view, and this is also a result of the increased power of schooling over our way of thinking. The schoolish view of child development is that children develop best when they're carefully guided and directed by adults. And that children's own activities are kind of a waste of time. And so therefore we believe that we're doing something good for our children when we put them in activities that are sort of school-like. Instead of just going out and playing and doing whatever the heck it is they want to do, we put them in something, some kind of adult-directed sport or a karate class or Chinese calligraphy or who knows what it is, 
And it's just basically more school. Now, it may, be, it may be for many children, these are things that they would choose to do. But for many children, it's not things that they would choose to do. And even if it's things that they would choose to do, it's still within the realm of an activity that is ultimately controlled by adults. And they're not learning the kinds of skills that they would if they were having to create their own activities. So these are some of the reasons for the decline of play. Now, the psychological consequences of the decline of play. So over this same period of time that play has been declining, over this same basically 60-year period, we have seen a dramatic increase in all sorts of mental disorders of children. And it's not just that we are identifying disorders that we didn't know how to look for before or that we're measuring them differently. These are, I'm convinced, real increases in in psychological disorders of childhood. And the, and the best evidence for it comes from analyses of clinically, standard clinical questionnaires that have been given over the decades in unchanged form to normative groups of young people. So, for example, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory has a scale for assessing depression. Uh, in, and there's a version of this for teenagers. And uh, this has been given since the 1940s um, to normative groups. And there are researchers who've analyzed the, at, to determine the, the, rain, the, the mean scores on this scale for people over time, for young people over time. And it turns out if you look at what, at the score on this scale that would lead today to suspected major depressive disorder, and you look at how many people are above that score, the rate of major depressive, the estimated rate of major depressive disorder among uh, school-aged teenagers today is about eight times what it was in the 1950s. And this has been a gradual increase over this period of time. Similarly, there is a scale called, um, there's, there's, a, there's a scale for assessing um, anxiety, what would today probably be called generalized anxiety disorder, uh, Taylor's Manifest Anxiety Scale, given since the 1950s. And over the decades, the anxiety scores on that scale continuously go up. Again, so such that somewhere between five and eight-fold increase in what today we would diagnose as major anxiety disorder. And these data came from something like 10 or 15 years ago. There's in there's new data indicating that depression and anxiety are once again are still increasing. And so it's even more even more dramatic increase than what I have indicated in uh, my book Free to Learn and other things that I've published. The suicide rate for children under age 15 um, has uh, increased sixfold since the 1950s. And again, although there's been ups and downs in this rate, it's been largely overall a linear increase, a continuous increase in the suicide rate. It's still increasing. In fact, there was recent publication that the suicide rate for children between the age of 10 and and 15 has uh, doubled in the last 10 years. Uh, The suicide rate for young people from age 15 to 24 
has increased, but not, as, not at quite as fast a rate. Of course, the suicide rate is higher for older for children than it is for younger children. So I'm talking about the in, amount of increase in, rate, in the rate. So the, incre- the rate of suicide for young people between age 15 and 24 is now about three times what it was in the 1950s. The suicide rate for, for adults, for sort of adults in the 24 to 40 year range, has increased a little bit. The suicide rate for kind of middle-aged people in, the 40, in their 40s and 50s, which I would call middle-aged, is, um, has not increased at all. And the suicide rate for old people like me has gone way down. So we have, over time, by that measure, we have become a much better world for old people and a much worse world for children. And we, older people, have done that. And we are the ones responsible for that. We are the ones who have to do something about that. So that's um, th- there's a so 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 this is a correlation. Now, as any good social scientist will tell you, correlation doesn't prove cause and effect. So over time, there's been a decline of play. Over time, there has been an increase in anxiety, depression, suicide in young people. Why do I think there's a relationship between the two? First of all, common sense tells me there would be a relationship between the two. A world without play for children is a depressing world. A world in which you are more or less constantly being judged and evaluated and compared with other people to see how you rank compared with other people, as happens increasingly in school over time, is, a, is an anxiety-provoking world. There's no way around that. How could there not be an increase in depression and suicide and an increase in anxiety when we have changed the world for children in that way? That's one reason. Secondly, there's no other clear explanation for this correlation. Some people say, well, maybe it has to do with the divorce rate. Divorces are higher now than they were in the 1950s. But divorces peaked in the 1970s, and this didn't peak in the 1970s. There hasn't been much change in the divorce rate since then. Moreover, there isn't any real evidence. And in fact, there's some counter-evidence that children in divorce are not any less happy than our children who are in a happy marriage. (laughs) And back in the 1950s, when you didn't have divorces because they really couldn't occur, they were legal, but women couldn't support themselves because there was no way for them to do so, women were often stuck, moms were often stuck in bad and abusive marriages, and there were many children in those situations. And I don't think anybody would make the case that those children are better off psychologically or would be expected to be better off than children of divorce. And so the, there's no data indicating that divorce, that the divorce changes in family divorce would increase depression and anxiety. Uh, Secondly, you know, so there, there's no relation to economic cycles. You know, adults get more depressed when we have a depression. <laughs> uh, adults get more anxious when there's a war, uh, but that doesn't seem to affect children that way. Children are far more depressed today than they were during the Great Depression. Children are far more anxious today than they were back when I was a kid in school and the 1950s, and in, uh, when we were, uh, we spent some of our time crawling under our desks because we were practicing hiding from the bombs that the Russians were going to send on us anytime. I mean, 
for, I think our adults were nervous about that, but I think for us it was a big joke, right? I mean, kids are affected not by those kinds of things. Kids are affected by the real situations in their immediate lives. And if, you don't, if you're not allowed to play, and if you're not having fun that day, and you're, whether or not you're getting along with other kids, these are the things that affect the psychological characteristics of children. And so, um, so that's part of the reason. And then there are also, you can't do experiments with, with children. We can't do an experiment where we take some, half the children and we're going to put them in the experimental group. We'll deprive them of play. And these other half children will give them an enriched play environment and we'll look at the psychological consequences of that. But you can do that with animals. <laughs> Used to be you could do it with monkeys. It's now regarded as cruel to do it with monkeys because it's cruel to deprive monkeys of play. Think about that. <laughs> so uh, we can't, you wouldn't pass a review board to deprive monkeys of play because the poor monkeys deprived of play. So, but, so, uh, but we can still do it with rats. You can do anything with rats. So the, uh, and, and so the experiments have been done with monkeys. They've been done with rats. And it turns out that there are ways of depriving young monkeys and young rats of play without depriving them of other social experiences. It would take some time to explain how that, they do that. But when you do that, it turns out that those young animals that are deprived of play are, act in ways that are quite analogous to what we would call depression, anxiety, they are socially incompetent, and so on and so forth. It turns out, in fact, there were some experiments done years ago with, where, with, where some monkeys were raised just with young monkeys without any adults present at all. They were just raised with peers, their mom. They were deprived of their mom. And other monkeys that were raised with their mom and adults but no peers. Which group do you think came out more psychologically healthy? The ones raised with peers came out more psychologically healthy than the monkeys raised just with adults. We are kind of raising our little monkeys just with adults right now. We're kind of doing that. And I think that we're seeing the consequences of that. So that's, uh, the, that's some of the reasons for thinking that. But let me now go on to another, um, another finding from questionnaires. There is a questionnaire called uh, the internal-external locus of control scale, the Rotter's internal-external locus of control scale, and there's a version of this for children. And this has been given to normative groups over the years since it was first developed in the 1960s, uh, in the early 1960s. And what this assesses is the degree to which you feel that you are in control of your own life versus the degree to which you feel that you are kind of a victim of circumstances, of fate, of powerful other people. Feel so, so and, and, and so, of course, most people are kind of in the middle of this, and the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. None of us are totally in control of our own fate and so on, and yet none of us are totally just victims of fate. But it turns out that even if it's something of an illusion, it's better to believe that you are in control than to believe that you're not. Because it turns out that those people who score high on internal locus of control, meaning they believe they're in control of their own fate, they can control what happens to them, they're in charge of their own life, they are far less likely to become depressed and anxious as life goes along than are those who believe that, they're like, that, they're, that what happens to them is out of their control. 
Not surprisingly, if you think that anything could happen at any time and you have no control over it, it's a pretty scary world and it's a pretty depressing world as well. So what has happened, you would think that between the 1950s and now, we would have increased our sense of control because in some sense, in reality, we have. (laughs) We can control diseases now that were actually killing people back in the 1950s. Uh, women can have much more control over their life now to, than they could have had back then when there were only very few jobs available for them and they were economically dependent upon men. Uh, African Americans have more control over where they can live and what they can do in the society than uh, they could back then. And yet these statistics apply for women as well, for for girls as well as for boys. It apply across um, ethnic and racial groups. Um, For all of these groups, the sense of control has gone down among children. The sense that you are in control of your own life has gone down. And so here's another reason to think that, uh, another explanation for the increase in anxiety and depression. How do you learn a sense of control if you're never allowed to take control? (laughs) When children are always being controlled because they're always in school or they're in some adult-directed activity or their parents are always around them, always there to tell them what to do and what not to do, how do you ever develop a sense that you can solve your own problems, that you can create your own activities, that you can lay out your own destiny? Of course... Play is where children learn that. It's where they practice that. So if they're not playing, how could they develop a sense of being, in, a strong sense of being in control of their own life? So here we have a kind of cause-effect chain. Lack of play results in lack of development of a sense of internal locus of control, which predisposes you for anxiety and depression. All right, one more piece of bad news. This is the most depressing talk on play that you have ever heard in your life. <laughs> this is, uh, everybody thinks, uh, you know, um, a talk on play should be all fun. The um, decline in creativity. We are living in a world where creativity is more important than it's ever been before, or at least than it's ever been before in recent centuries. <laughs> um, We are in a world where we've got robots to do all the non-creative things. We've got Google to dig up all the the answers to questions that have already been answered. The only kind of jobs that are really crying out for people are for people who can be creative, people who can ask questions that haven't been answered and that need to be answered, people who can figure out new things to do, people who who can learn on the job, people who are eagerly ready to embrace new kinds of experiences. These are all things that involve creativity. And so you would think that our, if our school system were really aimed at trying to prepare people for the job market, we would be, have a school system which would be more and more emphasizing creativity and less and less emphasizing rote kinds of stuff. But the truth of the matter is, school has changed in just the opposite direction. Over time, the focus has become more and more on standardized kinds of stuff, being able to answer multiple choice questions where there's one right answer. And if there's anything to be said about creativity is that if, an act, if, if there's only one right answer to something, this is not creative. <laughs> 
and even in schools, art cl- even those things that schools used to have that were semi-creative, art classes and chances to write poetry and all of these kinds of things, these have gone down uh, because of the focus on training children for standardized testing. So what has happened over time with creativity? Well, it turns out, I didn't believe it at the beginning, but it turns out that there is a valid test of creativity. It's really a battery of tests. Torrance's tests of creative thinking, which was developed several decades ago, um, and which turns out, how do we know this is a valid test? The reason we know is because it's been given to school children for many decades And in in research studies, those children were followed up into adulthood. And what is found out is those children who score high on this test when they're in school children are also the children who are most likely to do truly creative things uh, as adults. They're more likely to found new companies, invent new things, write novels, create documentaries, do all the kinds of things that we think of as creative activities. It turns out that scores on this test, the people who do this research have published papers showing that the scores on these tests is the best predictor we have of future creative creative production. Better predictor than IQ, way better predictor than grade point average in school, which is hardly a predictor at all. Better predictor than teachers' guesses as to who's going to be highly uh, creative as an adult. Better predictor than peers' guesses that we have to do that. And so isn't it a shame that over the last 30 years at least, scores on on this test have been continuously going down among school children at all grade levels. Going down at such a rate that the average score on these tests for school children today is equivalent to what the bottom 15 percentile would have been 30 years ago. So creative thinking by this measure is going down. For our economy, this for, even for people who aren't so concerned about happiness and they're concerned about economy, for our economy, this is a depressing observation. The economy depends upon creativity and it's depending more and more upon that we cannot, we cannot compete in the economic world if our people are growing up less able to be creative. The creativity is what we Americans have always prided ourselves on. You know, we are far from the richest country. Uh, we are far from the healthiest country. But we have always been the most creative country. We've been the people who have get the most Nobel Prizes, who invent the most things, who write the most novels that people read all over the world. We've always been that. And why is it that we have been? It's because we have had an element of freedom. And we have, we have focused on freedom. We value individuality. We value being different. But we're valuing that less now. And we are promoting a kind of schooling system where we're trying to more and more make everybody the same. That's actually the literal meaning of no child left behind. Everybody's supposed to be at the same point. Everybody's supposed to be doing the same thing at the same time. And that's, and that's what we're getting. We're getting something that more, uh, more of a standard kind of product and looking at trying to create people who are good at feeding back information that they're told, good at sticking to rather routine and boring tasks, but that's not what the economy needs anymore. The economy, more than ever, needs people who can break out of the mold. So 
so this, all of this combined is what I am calling play deficit disorder. So let me just spend a few minutes talking about how, what can we do to restore play, and then I just want to kind of turn it over to questions and discussion. And of course, people who need to leave can, should feel completely free to do that at any time. I mean, uh, so that's, uh, so how, what can we do about this? So I, I think that we're, I think more and more people are beginning to recognize the problems that I've been describing. There's more and more articles being written about it. There are more and more people blogging about it. There are more and more parent groups getting together to say this is a problem here and how can we solve this problem? How can we recreate the kinds of conditions in our society today that are healthy conditions for children, where children can play and explore and be as children are meant to be, uh, and yet be safe enough that we feel okay about doing it. We're not going to go back to the 1950s. We're not going to go back to a situation where just everybody lets their kids outdoors and lets them run. At least we're not going to go immediately back to that. That's too much of a jump. It took a long time to gradually change this way. We're not going to just suddenly jump back to this again. So what are the kinds of gradual changes that could occur to produce more freedom for children? So I've listed here on your handout sort of different levels of analysis of what we can do. So at the individual level and the family level, I think the first thing that has to happen for many parents, is that they need to examine their own priorities, their own values. What do you really want for your child? We have become such a society driven by the idea that somehow our child is a failure if they don't make it into Stanford or Harvard or something like that, or at least some kind of a four-year college that has some prestige value in it. But think about that. Is that really a value? Is that really the most important thing for your child? Would that, you know, if you think what would you want on your own tombstone, made it into Harvard or um, was a good friend, was a, was a kind person, <laughs> which do you really want? Was happy. There's a lot of people at Stanford and Harvard. There's a lot of lawyers and doctors. There's a lot of financiers. There's a lot of millionaires, even billionaires, who are very unhappy. Would you rather have an unhappy billionaire as a child, or would you rather have somebody who's making a living and being a good neighbor and a good father or mother and, um, and satisfied with life and feeling like they're in control of their life and they're doing what they want to do? And if that's what you want, then take the pressure off about school and allow your child time to play and explore. Take the pressure off the idea. We've turned childhood into a period of resume building. Let's stop building resumes. Let's just start letting children play because the things that we really and truly in our hearts care about and want for our children are the things that children learn and play and can't be taught in, uh, in school. So that's kind of at the, at, the, at the family level. The other thing at the family level, Lenore Skenazy has these, uh, she's sort of a colleague on the Let Grow. She wrote a wonderful book called Free Range Kids. If you haven't read it, I would recommend it. But uh, she has certain exercises for parents. She actually had a reality show which uh, played in Canada but didn't hear where she would, so there would be these parents who are afraid to let their children do certain things, right? And so she would be the person who intervenes in the family so there's a, so for example a family who 
doesn't let their 10-year-old cut his own meat because he'll cut his finger. <laughs> and so she'll go in and she'll show the 10-year-old how to cut his meat. <laughs> and 10-year-old will cut the meat and the parents are nervously standing by there. And then the parents, they see, oh, he cut his own meat. Oh, wow. <laughs> They're kind of proud of him. <laughs> Suddenly they have a new way of looking. Instead of thinking of their child as this helpless needy person who needs to have his meat cut. Now they're looking at their child in a new light. Oh, this is a competent person. This is a person. Or she'll say, you know, she'll go to a family where the, where the parents are, uh, don't allow the child outdoors. Maybe it's an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old, maybe even a 10-year-old. And she'll say, okay, so what we're going to do as the exercise today is little Johnny is going to go down two blocks away and buy a quart of milk and bring it back, all by himself. <laughs> and the parents are just really nervous about that. And, but little Johnny comes back, lo and behold, he's still alive, <laughs> and uh, the parents are proud of it. So one of the things that she is doing through certain school systems that have bought into this is she's having the schools give assignments to the children that they have to present their parents with a list of things that they would like to do but aren't being allowed to do and they have to negotiate with their parents which of these things would you allow me to do (laughs) and if you wouldn't allow me to do any of them fully is there some part of it you would allow me to do and that's because it's a school assignment parents can't ignore it right so (laughs) then the parents do it and then the child comes back and reports on it but the result of it is Once you do that, once you take this different attitude to your child, instead of thinking of my child as this creature that needs protection all the time, you start thinking, my child is actually pretty capable, then that grows, and you begin to think more and more about how capable your child is, and you begin to trust your child to do more and more things. So those are kinds of things at the individual level. At the neighborhood level, I think that... so. I've heard from hundreds of parents who say, I just so much want my child to go out and play, but there's nobody else out there to play with. And so, you know, so, you know, I can't take this thing of just send my child out as moms used to do or parents used to do. So how do you solve that problem? And it's not necessarily an easy problem to solve, and it can't necessarily be solved in every neighborhood. But Mike Lanza, one of the readings, I've, one of the books I've listed on the back is Mike, I've listed Lenore Skenazy's Free Range Kids. I've listed Mike Lanza's Playborhood. Mike Lanza in his book describes in, I think, six or seven different neighborhoods what they did to bring play back to the neighborhood. And most of it, most of the procedures involve neighbors getting together. So the first step is to get to know some of your neighbors who have kids. Talk about this with them. If they don't already understand the importance of play, you know, give them something to read, uh, give them, talk to them, present some of the evidence about how important play is, and talk to them about, uh, can we figure out a way in our neighborhood so we get all our kids out there playing with one another? And then and if, if we can't do it by just sending them out, maybe we can alternate. One of us can be out there just to make sure we're not going to intervene, but would you be there just to observe? And so that kind of thing has been done in different kinds of neighborhoods in different ways with success. So one of the neighborhoods he describes in the book was in the, is a, uh, actually a, a housing project in the Bronx. So people of rel- relative poverty are living there. 
And it actually is, there actually is some danger in going out and playing there. There are, there are shootings that occur and there are drug dealers and so on and so forth and a fairly high crime rate. And so there's some legitimate fear that parents have of just sending their kids out. And there's also high traffic. And so what these parents in this place did, they felt it was important for their kids to get out and play. So they got the city to close off the busy street uh, during after school hours. And they got grandmothers who were delighted to do this to sit out there and guard to make sure and drive the drug pushers away. So and grandmothers are good at that. So that's the, uh, that was their solution, right? So different neighborhoods can have different ways of solving the problem, but it takes, getting, it takes, it takes initiative. It's not going to just happen by itself. It takes initiative, and it takes somehow convincing others of your neighbors that this is something worth doing, worth taking the effort to make possible. So then another approach is to go through schools. So this is something else that at the Let Grow Foundation we're doing. We're working with schools to bring back more recess, to try to lighten up on the homework, but also to make schools themselves places for free play. So ideally, what I would like to see for every school in the country is for schools to open up for that period of time when the school day ends and when parents get home from work, typically. So maybe from 3 o'clock to 5 or 6 o'clock, two or three hours every day, for the school to open up for free play. Could be age-mixed play in an elementary school, all the grades together. If there's a middle school across the street, have the middle school join with the elementary school. Age-mixed play, uh, this would be a different talk, is, is even better than same-age play in many, many ways. There's much more to learn. It's more playful. It's more nurturant, more creative than same-age play is, less competitive. So, that's, um, that, so if you could open up schools, make, all the, make the whole school facilities available for just for play, during that period of time, you'd have the outdoor playground, the gymnasium available. If there's a swimming pool, that's available. If there's art supplies, computers, those are all available to play with. And um, you'd have all these people there to play. And you could provide a substantial, you could come close, not, not, still not fully needed, but you could do a lot to bring real play back to children's lives if that was done at every school in the country. And so far, I don't know of any schools who have adopted that. But there's one whole school district on Long Island that has the goal of adopting that. It turns out it's hard for schools to do anything. They're all kind of bureaucratic and legal problems, right? But this school district, headed by the superintendent, Michael Hines, um, who read my book, who has a TED Talk on how he hated school himself as a child, and here he is, he's a superintendent, and what, he's gonna, what is he going to do to make school a better environment? He's doing a lot of useful, valuable things with his school district, kind of going as far as he can go, kind of pushing the boundaries. But he, but he hasn't been able to institute after-school free play every day, but he's starting small with before-school free play just one day a week. So this is a little bit of an experiment. It turns out a lot of kids are left off about an hour before school because their parents have to get to work. And in the past, they either didn't have much to do or they had some kind of adult-directed thing. So he's opened up free play during that period of time. And it is turning out to be such a success that now 
the parents even are demanding more of it. The kids are, the kids, even the kids who don't have to be left off are asking. They want to, kids who normally, who in the past you had to drag them out of bed, they're getting out of bed early on play day. As they asked the night before, is tomorrow play day? And they get up early, eager to go because it's play day. They are, it's like giving a drink of water to somebody in the desert. These, this is something that kids are try, crying out for. One of the saddest comments, and yet one of the most pleasing comments I heard, I heard about this, is one child on the first day of this said, this is the best day of my life. <laughs> Why? Because I had an hour of play. It made it the best day of my life. On the one hand, how gratifying. On the other hand, how sad <laughs> that, that this child had been so lacking in play that this one hour of play made it the best day of his life. It's working out better than I would have imagined, and I think partly because it's age mixed and partly because the teachers did something that I believed they would find hard to do and not be able to do. It turns out I was hoping teachers wouldn't be the ones who were out there supervising, observing the play, because I felt they couldn't help but teach. They're trained to teach. They think their job is to teach, to intervene. Were they going to be able to hold back and not intervene and let the kids govern themselves? And so uh, I uh, said to the superintendent, you know, as you talk to these teachers, try to give them the message that when they're out there, they're not teachers. <laughs> when they're out there, they're scientists. And their job is to observe this species of animal. <laughs> and just to observe and admire what these creatures are doing, these little creatures are doing and to hold back, to intervene only if they believed that it was a serious, serious emergency. And it turns out, lo and behold, the teachers are doing that. And the kids are behaving in ways that they never would have been allowed to do in recess. And they're having such fun. And the fact that it's aged mixed, uh, the little kid, kids who are, have difficulty getting along with kids their own age are learning how to socialize because they're interacting with younger kids or they're interacting with older kids. Older kids are preventing bullying among younger kids. Uh, all the things that I have observed happen at the Sudbury School because of the age mixing are already happening in this, in this age mixed play within this standard school setting, more so than I would have uh, initially believed. I also believed initially, I was afraid that it might not work at the beginning because kids have had so little experience playing that they kind of wouldn't know how to play. They wouldn't know how to get something going. But it turns out, and again, I think part of the credit is the age mixing. Little kids sort of always know how to play. And the little kids are playing, and they're kind of stimulating the older kids to play and drawing the older kids into play. And the older kids are playing with the little kids. And then they're kind of really playing. And the other thing that happens in age mixing is age mixing by itself reduces bullying. I talk about some of the evidence of that in my book. But the presence of younger children brings out the nurturing instinct in older children. So that older children are better, not just to the younger kids, but they're better to one another when younger kids are around than when we separate them from younger kids. So one of the worst things we do in our culture, the second to the fact that we deprive children of play, is that we segregate them by age. When we segregate children by age, we're depriving them of interacting with those very children from whom they have the most to learn. Play throughout the world, throughout time, has always been age mixed. It's never been the case until the time of modern schooling 
that you, that you saw children just playing with other children who were within one or two years of their own age. So that, that's what's happening in school. At the community level, we're trying to uh, work with communities that want to become let-grow communities. And uh, there are two or three communities that are at least in the initial stages of this. And the idea is that the whole town or city makes a decision that we want to become a place where we regard children as competent, where we uh, uh, regard children as capable, where we understand that children are allowed in public places and encourage that rather than discourage it. And so this involves getting all the powers that be together, the police, the social services people, the education department, the uh, parks and recreation department, getting their heads together, and what can we do to encourage rather than discourage children's being in public spaces and playing together. And so we, you know, we're still early in that process, but there are several cities um, in New York and Connecticut that are signed on to it in a certain sense, and they're beginning the initial stages of these discussions. Even at a somewhat larger level, you've probably read in the news, or some of you have, about Utah passing what they call the, what is at least colloquially called the free range kids bill, <laughs> which is that it's not against the law to allow your kids out to walk to school without a parent or to go out and play in the park or to go down to the grocery store without an adult. Uh, specifically stated as a state statement, it never was against the law. <laughs> it never was against the law, but it was interpreted as if. It's all throughout the country. It's interpreted as if it's against the law. It turns out that the police and protective children's protective services have a lot of leeway for making decisions about what is negligent parenting. And so the things, as I've said before, that in the past would have regarded as normal, healthy, being healthy uh, parenting are now being regarded as negligent. So this is a statement that's not negligent parenting. Parents, it's up to parents to decide if their child is mature <coughs> enough or not mature enough to be out um, alone in such and such a place. Well, we're kind of hoping that this kind of a bill gets passed in more states. Um, New York State might pass a bill. I'm going to be speaking in Albany to groups of people who've invited me to speak who are interested in trying to get that, that passed. So that's, those are some of the initiatives that have, um, have gone on. And so I'm feeling somewhat optimistic. After all of this depressing talk, I'm feeling somewhat optimistic that the message is out there, that more and more people are grabbing onto the message, that more and more people are motivated to bring childhood back to children. So thank you very, very much for your kind attention. You probably already shop at Amazon. If you'd like to kick back a small commission from every purchase you make at no extra cost to you, please use and bookmark my special link at AmazonEVC.com. That's AmazonEVC.com. Will you do me a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends.